Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us these exceedingly great and magnificent promises that through those you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Before we begin our study of the Word this evening, let's go to the Lord and ask His guidance and direction. Our Father, again, we're just so thankful for all the ways You provide for us. Above all, we're thankful for Your Word. As the Scripture says, Your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as our Father, as our Savior prayed to You, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. And so we have absolute truth before us, teaching us to understand reality, which is your creation, to understand the dynamics of that creation and that reality, and to live in conformity to your creation and the ways in which you have established certain principles and laws for not only the conduct of natural things, the creation, but also in terms of human behavior, and that it is a lifelong pursuit to learn to not be pressed into or conformed to the mold of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking. So, Father, we pray that you might open our eyes that we can understand that which we study today in terms of the magnificent reality that is ours in Christ in this dispensation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start talking about this topic of the unity which is produced by God the Holy Spirit in this church age. And there's just a lot here that needs to be addressed and we we will take it apart one by one as we go through the coming uh, weeks and looking at this passage in depth. It is this concept of unity, as we see in the verse that we're looking at this morning, is a concept that is related to both what we've already talked in terms of the uh, characteristics that should... Um, that should be part of our daily walk with the Lord, but also on the basis of these realities that are true for every one of us. Every person who believes in Christ has partaken of these realities, but they are concepts that that Satan steals because they sound so good and perverts them. And you always hear people at different things like beauty pageants and other things, talk about world peace, and they don't understand what that is and that we can't have it in the sense they're talking about until the Messiah comes. But Satan is always trying to establish it now, and I always did like 
what Lewis Berry Schaefer said, that the absence of world peace and stability is evidence that Satan cannot truly be the God of this world as he wishes because to be God, one must be able to produce peace, and he cannot. So it is evidence of his failure. And so we have to understand this concept of peace, which is brought up here in verse 3, and the concept of love, which we looked at last time, which is also so poorly understood by human viewpoint, by the pagan mind, by the unbelieving mind. They know they want it. They know there's something there. But it, as the Bible talks about this love, it is not something that we can produce on our own. It is produced only by God the Holy Spirit. It goes beyond human love. And so it is the result of simply learning the Scriptures, walking by the Holy Spirit, and letting Him transform us. So we're looking at this section from 4.1 to 6.9, the second part of Ephesians. The first part, the first three chapters, talking about the wealth that we have in Christ. Now today we're going to go back some and see how the passage, this verse we're looking at, connects to the foundations developed in especially chapter 2, but also through chapters 1, 2, and 3. And now in this section, the focus is on application. So it, it gets real personal and pointed. I'm not making it personal and pointed. The text is doing that. And if it feels real pointed like somebody's jabbing you in the side, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not me. So we have to understand that. So we have the emphasis on walking in unity in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, putting on the new man, Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, and then the negative command, not grieving the Holy Spirit in 25 to 32, and then walking in love at the beginning of chapter 5. It is this walk in unity that is our focus right now. So Paul draws a conclusion from verses 1 through 3, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, strongly urge you to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the exalted position to which you have been called. We are in the royal family of God. We are identified by two phrases that are, we use it a lot, but they exalt us. To be called the body of Christ, no one else has ever been identified as the body of Christ. And we are called the bride of Christ. No one else. Israel's the bride of Yahweh. We are the bride of Christ. So these are high, high concepts that indicate our new identity in him. And then... In the last two or three lessons, we've looked at these attributes that accompany, that should accompany this, this worthy walk. I've broken it out this way in this chart, that it's accompanied by two things, a genuine humility uh, and a gentle kindness. It's awkward to translate either one of these words into English because we lack a vocabulary to correctly interpret them in just one word or another. The ancient world had no concept 
of humility. The word typani frisune, which is translated humility here, is one that was not used prior to uh, prior to the New Testament. That becomes a new concept. It emphasizes a quality in a person related to humility. And we often think of humility as letting other people take advantage of us, but no one took advantage of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who used both of these terms to relate to himself. And uh, gentle kindness, which is uh, prautas, it's very difficult to pronounce, prautas, and it is really has the idea of strength under control. It's illustrated by taking, a, if you have a wild animal, you see people taking wild mustangs or a wild lion or tiger and taming them. They are strong and they are powerful, but it is strength and power under control. And you, we can understand the meanings of these words a lot of times by the way in which they are used uh, or what they are used to contrast. Uh, so that it's helpful to understand that someone who is not short, short-tempered or quick-tempered, someone who is not, that does not speak too hastily, somebody who does not jump to conclusions, people who listen before they formulate a solution or an answer, uh, that are, those are all part, part of the idea of gentle kindness, somebody who is able to lead uh, with strength. And so it's accompanied by those uh, two qualities. And then the second is with patience, which is long-suffering. Uh, it is, is patience. It is it, it waiting on the Lord. And then there are two uh, participles that modify this, the, and the walk verb, and it is... They indicate the means or the manner in which we walk by putting up with one another in love and in the manner of making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So last time we looked at this phrase, bearing with one another in love, that it is putting up with one another uh, by means of love. It is using love as a tool to handle difficult situations. And so we have to understand what love is. And this love is not an emotion. It is a mental attitude. It is produced in us by God the Holy Spirit, and we saw that in Galatians 5.22, that it is the first quality of this singular word, fruit, not fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. So these describe the manifold matrix, the manifold facets of this matrix of the fruit of the Spirit. And the first is is love. And the way we uh, come to understand that is by looking at the Scriptures. And ultimately, the picture God gives us of love is the cross, John 3.16 and Romans 5.8, where God demonstrates his love toward us. Christ used this in John 13.34, and he says, A new commandment I give you. We cannot command an emotion. It is a mental attitude. It is a way of thinking that we learn and is gradually produced in us by God the Holy Spirit. So Christ says, I give you a new commandment. 
that you love one another as I have loved you. So the pattern is to look to Jesus to understand what that means and that we are to love one another. And, of course, one another in the Scripture focuses on believers. The Old Testament passage, to love your neighbor as yourself, was just anyone who is in your vicinity, and that is also exhibited in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where you have this Samaritan who in in the parable finds a Jew that has been robbed. He has been beaten up. He's been uh, waylaid on the on the road to somewhere, and so the the Samaritan is going to respond in care and biblical love and take care of this Jew. Now, why is that important? Well, we could transform this into a modern parable, and we would identify the Good Samaritan as a former black slave in the American South before the Civil War, and the Jew by the side of the road, or it could be a black after the Civil War, and the person on the road is a slaveholder or a brutal slaveholder or a member of the KKK. That captures the animosity that existed from the Jews toward the Samaritans. The Samaritans were not a pure Jewish ethnicity because when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, they took most of the population and they just scattered them to different locations throughout the Assyrian Empire. That was their normal policy. When they conquered a people, they would break them up so that they could not unite together and institute a revolt, and they would just scatter them uh, throughout their empire. So that's what they did with the ten northern tribes. That's why you hear people talk about them as the ten lost tribes, but they're not lost. God knows the descendants of every one of them in his in his omniscience. And then what they'll do is they have conquered other people. They will take those people and resettle them into these conquered areas so that the ethnicity of, of Jewishness in the area of what had been the northern kingdom is now mixed between these various uh, uh, Gentile groups and the Jews that remain there. And so the, uh, the, those in Judea looked down upon them. The reality is there were a lot, there's a lot of Gentile mixture even in those in Judea. You can think of some of them that we know from the scripture, like, like Ruth was one of them, and you have uh, Rahab was another one, and there were many other uh, Gentiles who had joined themselves with, with the Jews. And so th- it was a false uh, pride and false arrogance. And so the picture there with the Good Samaritan is that he is going to not just uh, uh, just help this person out, he's going to go the extra mile and he's going to cleanse his wounds. He's going to carry him to a an inn where he can stay. He will pay for him. He will give him clothes that he has, and he goes the extra mile. This teaches us that, that love is not just the absence of mental attitude sins. It is a very positive 
treatment of those who may hate us, those who may do us harm, and those who would uh, seek to destroy us. And so that is, that's the picture. That is why that is, is so powerful. Now, we looked at various attributes of love that are seen in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 4 and following, that love is patient. So we see that in connection with a virtue that is in our passage, that we are to walk worthy with patience, with makrothemia. So that's a characteristic of love. And it is kind, the word kristuomai, uh, which indicates a kindness. And then he says, love does not envy. It does not seek its own. It is, does not provide, uh, parade itself. And it is not puffed up. It's not oriented towards self. It's not self-absorbed. It is not arrogant. It does not behave rudely. Verse 5, it does not seek its own. It's not attention-grabbing. It's not all about the person who is loving, it's not all about you, it's about the other person. And this is a reason there's always problems between individuals is when one person thinks it's all about them and the other person thinks it's all about them, then you've got a real problem. So they, do, they don't seek their own, it's not easily provoked, and it thinks no evil. In verse 6, it says, we does not rejoice in iniquity, in sin. And when it sees that in another person, oh, I'm glad they finally fell on the place, on their face. That arrogant person has always uh, gossiped about me, or he's done this to me or that to me, and I'm so glad he, his sin is out there for everybody uh, to see. So it's not rejoicing in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Focus on the truth, always related to God's word. And verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We went through this rather briefly last time, as I am tonight, because I think it's, or this morning, I think it's fairly clear. Bears all things has to do with, with just think of yourself as a parent and your kids or your dog and you. Either one, it's going to be convicting, I know, that you love your kids. You know that they mess up. You discipline them when they mess up. But you put up with them anyway because they are your child, and you are working to bring discipline and maturity into their life. And that is how we are to treat everyone. We have friends, we have acquaintances, we have co-workers, we have parents, we have children, we have siblings, all of whom have behaviors that drive us crazy at times. But we are to bear all things. We put up with that and we are to love them in spite of that because that is what biblical love is all about. That is what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. Believing all things doesn't mean it's credulous or naive, but it is optimistic. It wants to believe in the positive things. It is uh, focusing on uh, improving that relationship, not on just finding things that you can pick apart and destroy the relationship. Hopes all things. It is focused on a future. That's hope always has a confident expectation for the future. 
and hopes all things in relation to the object of love. And then finally, endures all things. It is not seeking a way to kick someone out. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't unusual circumstances or extreme circumstances when it is not when it's not necessary to do that because God on the other hand does not enjoin us to uh, put ourselves in a position where we could put our health or our life in danger and that is an option to each person some people will stay in a relationship in order to hope to work through the problem or situation with someone. And it may be an abusive situation. It may be a situation where a person says, well, they could kill me, but I'm going to stick here and see if I can resolve the situation. I can think of one example, the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't come unto his people and say, well, you guys are going to kill me and you're going to beat me unmercifully and do all of these things to you. I guess I'll just leave now and go find somebody else who will accept me. He hung in there. That doesn't mean that in every situation, because we can all think of people we know who have kids who just are so incorrigible and they get onto drugs or they steal money or they do any number of things where parents must go to that extreme and say, you just can't live here anymore. I've known a number of situations like that. In fact, I had a relative for with you know my age, and that happened to him. And I heard of a situation just last Sunday. I was supposed to have gone to a reunion party. My class of 70 will probably never have a reunion. COVID will always intervene. But we were supposed to go to this party that Sunday morning. I got this text, don't don't come, no, the party's canceled. came out that they had taken in an incorrigible grandson who committed suicide that morning in their home because they were going to, they had asked him to leave that week, that he just would not abide by any of their rules or anything else. So we do make decisions to keep someone in our life close, and we know there's a risk of bodily harm or injury or abuse. But then we it's up to us where we're going to draw those boundaries and where we're going to draw those lines. And there, that's up to each individual. You can't set a hard and fast rule on that. But there's nothing wrong with getting to that point where you know that line's reached and it, it can't go forward because of the destructiveness of the behavior. So we are to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things, and that comes with that love, which is truly supernatural. The Christian life is a supernatural way of life, and it demands a supernatural means, which is God the Holy Spirit. So we haven't defined love, but the Scripture describes love. And so I have this chart here where love is in the middle. Anything within this circle is defined as love, and the attributes that relate to it are being patient, being kind, not being envious or conceited or arrogant or rude or self-absorbed or easily irritated or provoked or angered, 
Uh, we don't impute evil to other people thinking, oh, I heard this, so you must be guilty. We look at the details and the evidence. Not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but rejoicing in the truth, rejoicing in integrity. So those are the characteristics of the kind of love that God the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. And this is what is will be emphasized when we get to chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul will write, and walk in love, walk by means of love. Again, it is a means, it is part of what I call spiritual skill that we develop to use to handle situations with unpleasant people, people that we have to live with, work with, deal with on a day-to-day basis. We are to walk by means of love as Christ also has loved us. Going back to the prime directive of John 13, 34, and 35, and that's we can't do it. You can't manufacture this kind of love in your life. It is the result of God the Holy Spirit. How did Jesus love us? He gave himself as a substitute for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. John 3.16 and Romans 5.8, God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We were not pleasing to God at all. The thoughts of our heart were evil continuously. Uh, The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it, yet God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still obnoxious, unlovable sinners, he loved us, and Christ died for us. So that helps us to understand what it means to bear uh, bear with one another uh, in love. Now we come to the next verse, verse 3, endeavoring. This is a second participle that is parallel to the other one endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit by means of the bond of peace. It's a, it starts just like the other phrase. It starts with a participle, so it's parallel in meaning in the manner of putting up with one another in love and in the manner of making every effort. Here it is directed towards maintaining the unity of the Spirit, but the phrase in the bond of peace is also a, a preposition of means, by means of, of a peace, the bond of peace. So we have to understand what that bond of peace is. And bond is not... You lose the significance of the Greek word by, look, by just looking at the, at the English. So the word translated endeavoring is the word spudazo. Spudazzo is a word that is was it was more interpreted than translated in Second uh, Timothy, where Paul says, "Study to show yourself approved unto God." The context showed that it was talking about learning the Word of God, but the word is spudazzo, and that has the idea of being diligent, making every effort, or being zealous to do something, making it a priority. So this is the word. It's used 11 times in, um, 
in the scriptures, and I'll tell you a little side story. I think of this for 40, almost 50 years I've thought of this. When I was a counselor at Camp Penile, one of the things that they do, and they still do it, is they use sort of a uh, Tejas Indian tribe thing for how they organize the kids at camp. And so the counselors are not Mr. So-and-so, they're they're chief. And so the first year you're at camp during that summer as as a counselor at the end of the summer, they will give you an Indian name. And that Indian name is supposed to somehow... Uh, reflect uh, something about your personality. And they just couldn't come up with anything for Dr. Randall Price. Of course, he wasn't a doctor back then. We were just barely out of high school. But he loved to study the Word as he does to this day. And so what they ended up doing is making up this Indian name. They called him Spudazzo Owl. We still, I still give him a hard time about that. But that's the idea, is someone who is zealous, especially toward the study of God's Word. But here it is uh, related to keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it has the idea uh, not of creating something. That word to keep is the word tereo. And that has the idea of keeping something or guarding something or maintaining something that is already in place. The goal isn't to create the unity. The unity is established by God the Holy Spirit at the time of our salvation. That is part of something that happens for every believer at the instant of salvation. We are all united in the body of Christ. But we are to be diligent or to give, make every effort to maintain that unity because that unity is often going to be uh, broken up for one reason or another. And so we are to maintain that unity of the Spirit, and this is the Greek word enotes or henotes, that is translated as unity or oneness, and this is found in only two verses, and they're in our passage. They're here in Ephesians 4, 4, 3, to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit by means of the joint bond of peace. And then we see verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, in verse 13, that the way that is translated until we all come to the unity tells us that this is a process, that that God the Holy Spirit creates the unity, but maintaining that unity is going to be directly related to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And so that that is indeed... Um, indeed a process. So what we see in terms of the basic language and the grammar here is it's parallel to verse the last part of verse 2 and it is in the manner of 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 um, the in the manner of being diligent or the in the manner of making every effort to maintain the unity uh which is produced by God the Holy Spirit 
and we maintain that by means of the bond of peace. Now, when we think about peace, one of the ideas that is dominant in our culture is that peace is the absence of conflict. And in some sense, that is true, but we think of it as as peace in the sense of the absence of physical conflict like war. But in the scripture, it has the idea of uh, the removal of a conflict between man and God. And how is it used in Ephesians chapter 2? We always have to be driven back to context. Paul is writing to the Gentile believers in Ephesus, and he has already introduced the concept of peace as that which is the, should be the new state between Jew and Gentile. And so we go back to chapter 2, and we see the emphasis on oneness in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace who has made both. Who are the both? Jew and Gentile. I want to remind you that I said the only biblically authorized ethnic distinction ever made was the distinction between Jew and Gentile, which God made when he called out Abram to be the father of a new people because he was going to use him and his descendants to bring up the Messiah into the human race and to to have a people who would preserve and pass on his word so that that was codified in the Mosaic Law. Not a distinction between different ethnicities, but just between those who were descendants of Abram and everybody else. And everybody else is a Gentile. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, what group you came out of, what tribe you came out of. Those are not legitimate distinctions to make in terms of your relationship with others. I have defined racism as, for a Christian, as any believer who puts ethnicity, subculture, culture, uh, tribal uh, allegiance, or any other human factor as more important than the unity that we have in Christ. And when we get to down to the part where we talk about the unity of the faith or one faith in verse 5 and looking at it down in verse 13, this is being fractured today by people of many different ethnicities because they want to uh, make uh, an institu- or they want to institutionalize this aberration, this horrible view of the human race, it's a worldview, uh, critical race theory. And it is based on the concept, it's based on hate, it's based on the claiming that every human being is a racist, and if you're white, you're an uber-racist, and you're probably an uber-uber-racist if you're a white male evangelical heterosexual. And so, therefore, you have committed an unforgivable sin because in their term, if you're white, if you're a racist, it's unforgivable. There is no forgiveness, not now or in eternity, and it is fueled by anger. 
It is fueled by bitterness. It's fueled by resentment. And as we'll see, that has no place in the body of Christ. That is the opposite of love. And it is dividing congregations, it, it, and it should, because those who are holding to this are buying into the devil's truth, and they are the devil's disciples. It is dividing denominations. The Southern Baptist uh, Convention is going through some horrible things right now as a result of this. It's going to divide families. I read this last week, an article about how many people are uh, parents are being canceled by their kids. My first response was those parents ought to cancel their kids, take them out of the will, and um, let them know what, what that there are consequences for idiocy. But we have this in, uh, this is tearing apart the visible body of Christ today, and that has to make it the, the tool of Satan. God did ne- God never authorized this kind of resentment or uh, this this kind of of uh, caricature of races that we find today. We're all part of one human race, and every individual is created in the image and likeness of God. And so, there's no basis for this at all. That's what we learned as we went through Ephesians two fourteen through sixteen that. Christ is our peace. He's made both Jew and Gentile one now. That happened at the cross. He broke down the middle wall of separation. Well, when did he do that? He did it when he abolished in his flesh the enmity. When did he do that? It was the law of commandments contained in the ordinances so as to create in himself one new man. He did that at the cross. At the, at the cross, that barrier was eradicated, that barrier between Jew and Gentile. Since that's the only legitimate barrier based on ethnicity in history, there is, for the last 2,000 years, there's no basis for that kind of, of a barrier. And so he, what did he do? He created in himself, in Christ, in the body of Christ, one new man. And where there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or slave, male nor female. Now, that's the result of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is integral to understanding this, and we'll talk about it it, it next week um, because it demands one whole lesson just on itself. So he created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So when he talks about the bond of peace from the Holy Spirit in verse 3 of chapter 4, he's thinking in terms of this peace between Jew and Gentile created by the cross, where he reconciled them both to God, both Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And then skipping 17 in verse 18, he says, for through him We both, Jew and Gentile, have access by the same spirit. The Jews don't have one spirit and uh, Gentiles another spirit. By the same spirit, we have access to the Father. And then we'll see in the next, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll go through these seven statements about oneness, unity. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. that Notice that all relates to the Holy Spirit. 
Then you have God the Son emphasized in verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all related to God the Son. And you say, well, wait a minute, what is that baptism? Well, be here next week, you'll find out. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, that God the Father indwells each and every one of us, not just God the God the Holy Spirit, not just God the Son, but all of the Trinity. So this is a great passage on the Trinity. So we are to be diligent or make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now this word for bond is the Greek word soon desmos. Now, we've seen uh, the form of the word desmos. It means to be a, uh, a prisoner, and that's the word that Paul uses earlier when he says, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, someone who is in chains, someone who is incarcerated. Uh, here it is prefixed by the preposition with. Now, that's really interesting. Why is that interesting? because of how many times Paul coins new words in chapter 2 and chapter 3 by prefixing soon to that. Soon means together with. And so we are reminded that in Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, he talks about what happens, that we who were dead, spiritually dead, separated from the life of God, Uh, He says in verse 5, even when we, Jew and Gentile, were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together. Okay, that's a a, a word there with soon. It is uh, raised us up. We are raised together. So it's soon, uh, soon a gyro. uh, Raised us up together and made us sit together. That's the second that that happens at the instant of salvation. We are, well, first of all, we're made alive together in 2.5. Then we are raised up together in 2.6. And third, we are seated together. The together is Jew and Gentile. No ethnic distinctions. We are all seated together in Christ. That involves male and female, Jew and Gentile, bond or slave, all are united in Christ and seated together. That's our new exalted position in Christ. And then in later in that in chapter two, when he's talking about what Christ did on the cross in obliterating the enmity between Jew and Gentile, for through him we both, that's together. We both have access by one spirit to the Father. And then in the next verse, he says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. This is soon polituo. This is our politis, which is that that, um, you're a fellow citizen. So all of these are joint things. It is that, that we are together, all of these things, Jew and Gentile, and then further, he says, in whom, that is in, in the body of Christ, you also are being built together. There's another soon. We are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And then in 3.6, 
the purpose of this was that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs or joint heirs. Again, it's the uh, prefixed by the word soon, the pre- prefix soon of the same body. So same heirs, identical heirs, fellow heirs, the same body and partakers of his promise. So all of these are what every believer has together. We want to emphasize it's that way because there there should not be any distinction because we all have this identity and position. So the distinctions that are made for various reasons are all come out of the sin nature. They're all opposed to the plan of God. They are all based on something other than love because it's all based on asserting some sort of self-identity. Now, Paul stresses this so much over and over again as we look at the scriptures. He emphasizes the importance of of this unity. In Romans, in 12.16, he says, be of the same mind toward one another. That's the positive. It's a unity. Think the same way, basically. In contrast, don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. See how that echoes the same thing he's saying in Ephesians 4.2 in terms of humility and uh, gentle kindness. And he says, don't be wise in your own opinion. When you're wise and you're arrogant, it's going to fracture that unity that God the Holy Spirit has already created. Romans fourteen nineteen. therefore let us pursue, that's an active concept, pursue the things which make for peace and the things which, uh, by which one may edify one another. And as we look out on the scene today and we see this divisiveness caused by critical race theory and social justice and the number of pastors and churches that are getting on board because they've got so many bills to pay, It all comes down to money. They've got so many bills to pay and so many people that if they let something that that is going to make half their congregation unpleasant, then their church might split and they can't pay the bills. So we're all going to cave into the social pressure of getting along with this. And they're just the devil's disciples. Uh, We are to pursue the things that make for peace. And that is not at the expense or sacrifice of biblical truth. So the churches that are validating LGBTQ whatever behavior are just the devil's disciples. They are the ones who are, who are fracturing the unity that was established by God the Holy Spirit. Those who are teaching false doctrine, who deny the deity of Christ, who deny the substitutionary atonement, who deny the Trinity, who deny that God has a separate and distinct plan for Israel and a future plan for Israel that he will bring about uh, after the return of Christ. And so it excludes replacement theology and it excludes anti-Semitism. Those are all people who are creating fractures in the body of Christ. But where do they point their fingers? Oh, it's on us. You evangelical dispensationalists, you're just so divisive. If if you wouldn't hold to the Bible in your superstitious manner, then, then we could all get along together. That's what we hear. And that's just the devil's own lie. So we have to pursue the things that make for peace, and that is not at the expense of doctrinal correctness. 
and the things which may edify one another, they are one and the same. If it makes for peace, it will be edifying, strengthening, building up one another. Romans 15, 5, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. That includes the people who, based on their personality or their spiritual growth, might be a little obnoxious to you or they're not as lovable. But we are to be like-minded, but that like-mindedness is is on the Scripture where Paul says, think on these things. Uh, It is, be like-minded toward one another according to a standard, which is Christ Jesus. That you may be, have, may be, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians, he deals with this, of course, because they're so divisive, they were so arrogant and self-absorbed and, and splitting up into all kinds of different groups. In First Corinthians 1.10, Paul pleaded with them, saying, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be... I don't know where that came from. It's not be uno. It's not that. It's not bueno either. It's be no divisions among you, but you, that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Second Corinthians thirteen eleven. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete or mature. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. All through the scriptures, this is the emphasis. Philippians 1.27, again, a passage on living your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Those who are not going to unify on the truth need to be excluded. Dr. Leitner, who's now with the Lord, one of my professors at Dallas, used to say, sometimes churches grow by division and subtraction. It is necessary to exclude those who have bought into Satan's lies because they will destroy a local church. Philippians 3.16, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. And then in 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and note that those who walk as you... Note those who, who so walk as you have us for a pattern. In other words, they follow our example. Now this brings us to where we'll begin next time. The emphasis that we see when Paul talks about the unity of the body is that he also talks about the differences um, of, in the distribution of spiritual gifts. This is an emphasis on unity and diversity. There is a oneness, a unity in the body of Christ, but that doesn't mean that God holds some sort of mold and he's making everybody exactly the same. There is a unity in the way we think, but there are different ministries and distinctions between each believer. And so 1 Corinthians 12 also talks about spiritual gifts. Remember, Ephesians 4 talks about the four key leadership gifts given to the church down in verse 11. And here in 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 14, he says, 
But there's one and the same Spirit who works all these things, that's unity, distributing to each one individually as he will. So this is a ministry of God the Holy Spirit. For as the body is one and has many members, so we the body is one, it is united, same mind, uh, has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And then verse 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So there's the unity, but there are distinctions, whether Jew or Greek or Jew or Gentile, whether slaves are free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. But what does that mean to be baptized by the spirit? Therein lies a lot of confusion, which I'll deal with next week. And then he concludes, for in fact the body is not one member but many. So in the next verse that we come to in Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. This is where he introduces this unity factor by the Holy Spirit And he will go on in verse 5 to talk about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But since the baptism here is related to all of these, I'm going to take it ahead of time so that we understand what I'm talking about when I use that terminology. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the fact that we have a unity in Christ. This unity was accomplished by God the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. It was grounded upon the work of Christ on the cross where he broke down the barrier between Jew and Gentile so that now there is only one body. There's not a body of body for Gentiles. There's not a body for Jews. There's not a body for Caucasians. There's not a body for blacks. There's not a body, another body for Hispanics. There's one body, and there's no basis for division based on ethnicity. And, Father, this this race card, these race baiters that constantly bring this up in our culture to aggravate the distinctions uh, are, are just creating such trauma within the visible body of Christ. And, Father, we need discernment. We need uh, the critical thinking skills necessarily to deal with these uh, worldviews that seek to bring destruction into our world and into our nation and into our families and, Father, we pray that you might give us the, the patience, the love to handle these situations, the wisdom and the skill to apply the truth of your word to our personal circumstances because these are, can be very, very complicated. And we need to have the same wisdom available to Solomon, which is available to us in your word. We need to be uh, dedicated students of your word. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in these areas. And, Father, we pray that anyone listening or anyone here that has questions about how they are saved, how do they have new life in Christ, that it is very simple. It's not based on ritual. It's not based on human effort. It is based on the fact that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He settled that issue, but we have to trust in him. We're still born spiritually dead. We still lack righteousness. But the only way we can have spiritual life and righteousness 
is to trust in Christ. And at that instant, we're made alive again, and we receive his righteousness. So we pray that you would make that clear to any who needs to understand how to be saved. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.